You're listening to Women Making Waves. Who is the Geek Whisperer? Well, Adelina Chalmers loves engineers and they love her. She speaks the language and many other languages too and gains both their trust and those who work with them and achieves extraordinary results connecting on all levels. She opens up to Susie Thorpe about her philosophy. Is listen to understand. Don't listen just to respond. At 99.9% of people I work with never ask themselves what is it that the other person wants. I can't wait to go home. <laughs> we need to go somewhere else and be abroad because this is not the country where I was meant to live. Um, we had uh, some sessions with Theresa May where she would come in and ask us what we thought the government should do next. Adelina Chalmers is the geek whisperer, never stops working, helping engineers at all levels for the past 15 years and those that work with the engineers too. Now let's start, Adelina, with what exactly you have to offer. Well, one of the things I do is I like to translate soft things, soft skills. How do you get someone's buy-in? How do you network with someone into black and white algorithms that give people very clear formulas, safety in structure. There is safety in the structure of things. And I like to, to work with engineers to, to give them a structure, a formula or an algorithm that helps them get the influence they want in their business. You call it, or why it's named, the Geek Whisperer. Oh, the story behind it is quite funny, actually. I've always loved engineers and uh, scientists. My mum is a chemical engineer herself. I was doing a, a lot of training with um, engineers and scientists at Cambridge University. And someone observed me once and just came to me afterwards and said, Jesus, you're like the geek whisperer. We've never seen anybody be able to, to get these guys to do this or do that. And I just thought, that's a brilliant name. Can I take that on? <laughs> and that was it, because before it was called Presenting Good Practice or Genuine Insights, but they were not really the core of, of one of my key values. And You say you work with or you have an affinity with the engineers mm. because they're very black and white in their philosophy. Is that necessarily a good thing? Is that something you relate to now? But life is not black and white, is it really? You're absolutely right. Um Engineers can be very black and white, and I was, and I still am sometimes, like that. So that's why I think we get on. Life is not black and white, and I try to milk algorithms to help engineers see the grey side of things. So in order to do that, you, so they literally, you're coaching them, aren't you, to present their ideas within a company, either for their boss, to influence their boss on a particular role or subject... I mean, do you pick your clients or do they come to you? Um, I think it's a bit of both, really. Um, with ARM, for example, someone introduced me to them and when they saw my, my courses, um, because they were very black and white courses, one of the courses was called Unappreciated for Being Honest, How to Tell Them It Won't Work. They immediately jumped uh, the opportunity to run some training on that because it was such a common challenge with engineers. Engineers feel they're honest. And they are, but the way they are honest doesn't necessarily help the other person solve the problem they had. 
Do you just work with engineers, Adelina? Is there anybody else you work with? Um, I work with engineers at all levels. So all the way from software or hardware engineer to CTO level or president sometimes if they've become a president of a company. I also work with the people who have to work with engineers. So sometimes learning and development people or HR people, I help them understand how to get engineers on their side because often those sorts of programs strike out. I also sometimes work with salespeople to help them understand the engineer's perspective as well. What are the key lessons that you are giving when you're coaching? What are the main things that you want to give as a coach? In engineering, there's like the principles of en- the first principles of engineering. In communication and leadership, I like to call the first principles of leadership. The first one is listen to understand. Don't listen just to respond. And I give an algorithm for that. There's a communication protocol that I've made for engineers specifically, software engineers, that tackles how to listen to understand. How do you know you've listened to understand? The second one is how can we solve the problem? Look at the, Looking at the bottom line, looking at what this person actually needs rather than what you think about what they need. And thirdly, I think psychological safety is absolutely crucial. What that means is a fancy term for building trust for your employees to tell you when things go wrong. And to me, that's absolutely crucial. Now, you talk about algorithms. Can you give us an insight into what exactly is an algorithm? An algorithm basically says that um, to resolve a situation, you have certain conditions that you have to meet so if x then y if y then z and and it just kind of goes from one step to the other for example uh, an algorithm the appreciation algorithm to get buying from others you cannot pitch anything unless you answer two key questions what is it that i want this person to do as a result of me asking them this question what is it that they want in relation to my question and then you ask yourself, okay, what can I, what information can I give them to make sure they get what they want and I get what I want? And 99.9% of people I work with never ask themselves, what is it that the other person wants? You are, as I said, very, very successful now. But there is, there's always a history, isn't there, behind being very <laughs> successful in where you've come from. Now, you were born in Romania. And at a very tender age, you said to your mum, what? I can't wait to go home. <laughs> we need to go somewhere else and be abroad because this is not the country where I was meant to live. 1989, I was seven years old and Romania was living through communism. What made you think, though, that, that Romania wasn't your country to live in? Why, why did you feel that, that even at a young age? Well, I mean, that's quite impressive at mm. seven years of age to feel that that was not your country where you wanted to be. It just felt... Culturally, it didn't feel like it fitted me. Like, for example, my my mom, she was a chemical engineer. She was someone who loved to fulfill her promises. But what I noticed was that any other adult wouldn't. And to me, that wasn't a cultural fit. I liked to be in a country where I can book things in the diary six months in advance. <laughs> and I can stick to it. And I know if I say I'm going to be Monday at 5 p.m., I'm going to be there Monday at 5 p.m. You came to the UK at 21. You were studying back in Romania, but you took some time out and you found a job picking raspberries. Yes. And then what happened? Um, I, this, this working holiday uh, in Norfolk, um, near Norwich, was a nightmare. It was 90 hours of work, uh, 14, 15-hour days every day. And one day I just thought, I, ha- I have enough. After two and a half months of doing this, I just took the day out and went to Norwich. 
And when I arrived in Norwich, this lady on the bus said to me, do you know where the city centre is? And I said, I'm not actually from here. She said, oh, where are you from? And I said, oh, I, um, I, I'm from Romania, but I, I study law at the moment, but I don't really want to study law. So this lady said, well, do you want to study? And I said, travel and tourism management, because I thought, I spoke four languages at the time. I speak five now. I thought, that's an area where... That's a lot of information to give a lady on a bus for the first introduction, <laughs> I have to say. But I applaud you. It was my two-minute pitch. <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> and uh, and she, she said to me, well, I'm actually in town buying a present for my, birth, my boyfriend. Do you want to come with me? Because I work at the Norwich City College. And literally on the same day, she took me and I saw the international students advisor at the time, a lady called Sarah Sherwin, who said to me, you're such an ambitious young lady, you'll get far. And I said to her, me? Ambitious? No, no, it's just just the way I am. <laughs> and uh, that day I, I joined. And then from there, you found another job in a local paper about helping people to integrate. And you got the job straight away. Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> they needed someone who could speak fluent Portuguese. Uh, it was about integrating Portuguese immigrants. And I spoke uh, intermediate to basic Portuguese, but I promised them I would learn the language within a month. That is ambitious. So, And in fact, you did do that. You I learned did. Portuguese within a month. I, I learned Portuguese, yeah, really quickly. Within, I think, um, a month or so, I was pretty fluent. And I, I increased their Portuguese um, people ac- accessing their services because it was an integration service. It was a community development integration service from zero a month to about 130 a month. I mean, we could not cope with the level of people coming over. You then decided to get into the human rights. Equality and human rights. And I do believe we're working for Theresa May when she was an equality minister at the time and you were on the steering committee. Now this just gets better and better from working <laughs> in a fruit farm, meeting somebody on the bus and now working with the steering committee for Theresa May when she was an equality minister. Tell me how that happened. So from working with grassroots level, what was called Portuguese immigrants, um, I got promoted and promoted and got job after job to the level where I worked for an NGO that was um, paid by the Home Office to advise the Home Office on uh, black and minority ethnic rights and challenges within each of the regions in the country. We had briefings with various advisors of ministers, but then uh, sometimes we also met the ministers directly, hence um, we had uh, some sessions with Theresa May where she would come in and ask us what we thought the government should do next. From working within the steering committee and yeah. with Theresa May, mm. did you learn a lot? I mean, that's, I know it's a very obvious question, but did you learn so much in a short space of time? Being uh, an advisor at such a high level, especially because I was very young at the time, I was only about 28, I think, it was... I uh, My eyes opened a lot. I... I, I immediately realized, because I always do, did this job because I wanted to make an impact on people, and I realized within a couple of years that actually doing policy development, you never see the direct impact you have on people other than from newspapers when there's a there's a big story as a, an impact, direct impact from what something you created. You said that it's actually the governments that don't have the power. It's actually the companies that really dictate what we do and see and how we react socially. Can you elaborate on that one? Yep. Um, Actually, as I was working in human rights, I also decided to do a degree in international development. And I did that with the Open University while I was working full time uh, for this NGO that was advising government, as well as working for the courts and the police as um, a consultant. I, during my studies, as well as in my real work, I realized that, for example, especially in developing countries, 
you have Apple, you have Microsoft going there to build technology. They're going to dictate and have a direct impact onto people's lives much more than their own governments will, which are highly corrupt often. What, what would you say makes a very good client? The ideal customer, I think, recognizes they have a problem. A lot of the, the people that I work with, sometimes they, they don't recognize they have a problem. If we're talking the ideal customer in terms of the person I'm talking to, I love people who are not necessarily fully aware they have a problem, but they see the side effects of that problem. They see people not listening to them and they're frustrated by that. What about men and women? Do you see a different side to the men and women when they come to you? Um, most of my courses are usually attended by 95% of men. But one of the courses I run is usually attended by about 80% women and only 20% men. And this course is how to respond when challenge interrupted. Mm. Women get interrupted at work a lot more. I did not believe that until I saw it, if I'm honest with you. Why did you not believe it? Had you not experienced that yourself then? Uh, because I hadn't, yes. I'm someone who's very confident, as you can probably tell. And I'm someone who puts her point across. And working in politics, you <laughs> kind of learn that as well. And I hadn't realized that in corporates or in companies, this happens. It, people don't do it because they want to. Is there anything that really surprises you? As you said, you've just been surprised by how women have been interrupted when they are communicating. Is there mm. anything else that you've come across recently if I'm very genuine, I am very surprised by the fact that a lot of um, senior leaders don't seem to understand that by reacting ne negatively when someone is honest to them, they are creating a terrible culture in the organization. And I, I thought that was a given. I thought that's something that everybody would know, but it turns out it's not. And that was, is one of your key assets, isn't it? Trying to communicate that there are different ways of accepting feedback. Do you think there's part of a nurture over nature? Is it naturally to be? It's naturally to be survival, isn't it? I'm delighted uh, you raised that topic because all my training is based on on the science of how the brain processes information, and we have a part of the brain, the amygdala, which is the survival part of the brain, and that part of the brain reacts when someone criticizes you because we're wired to be accepted. Because five thousand years ago, we'd have been dead if we weren't accepted by the tribe. I think. Overall, um, women don't have this kind of testosterone-driven attitude to things. So I think things might be more collaborative. I'm, I wouldn't be able to say for certain. I would say biologically for both men and women is that becoming aware of the biological reaction they get when someone gives you negative feedback is half the battle. There was a quote recently from you when you say you don't like status quo, but you don't like sitting down and not moving forward. You like coming out of your comfort zone. and Obviously, you portray that to all your clients as well. From an early age, from seven, it's, it's always been not a status quo for you, hasn't it? That's a very good point, actually. I hadn't realised that, but you're absolutely right. I always have the mentality of ship. And when I say ship, I mean deliver, put it out there, even if it's not perfect. It's better to put out there something that's not perfect than put out there nothing. Do you see future women leaders when you are actually working with women? I mean, I, I'm ask, I should ask that for men as well, but do you see more women leaders coming out now from the people that you work with? Uh, I, think, I think so. I mean, in fact, I run this Cambridge Startup Billion Pound Challenge event uh, where I get companies to pitch a business problem instead of pitching themselves. And my whole panel is made of women leaders. And I only have one token man at each event. 
And the reason for that is, is because I want to promote this idea that women also can be leaders because maybe there's a young lady in the audience that sees that panel and goes, oh, I could be one of them in 10 years' time. But what is next? What, As you say, it's never a status quo moment for you. What, what's moving you forward at the moment, Adelina? I'm looking at uh, scaling my own business because I hear this question a lot where people say, oh, I wish we had more of you. And I'm, I don't think genetic cloning has been perf- perfected yet. <laughs> um, like, would you like that? I, <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't think I could put up with two of me. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, I think what drives me forward is that I would like to, to reach more people and, and help more people become aware of why something is happening to them. Have you got any mentors? Obviously, you are a mentor to lots and lots of people. And But who is your mentor? There's um, a handful of amazing women um, I've met recently. Um, one of them is Helen Adams, a former vice president of sales from Arm. And she has been very helpful to me in having some conversations about my own business. I also um, uh, meet regularly with uh, Gareth Marlowe, who's the former chief operations officer at Redgate. And him and I have some conversations about um, the business and about things in general to to help me keep on track. Would you have a politician as a mentor? (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely not. Okay, I was going to suggest (laughs) Theresa May. (laughs) I think she's too busy with other other things. She is, but I wonder who her mentor is. I love her story of coming to England when she was 21, I think. She came to England. She started picking fruit. And one of the best stories for me was when she met a lady on the bus. She'd got bored one day and decided she wanted to go into Norfolk and have a day off from fruit picking. And just by chance, she meets a lady. And life literally just takes off from there. It's amazing, isn't it, how that can happen? Just one little decision. It's like the sliding door thing, isn't it? It is, really? actually, that good film, yes. Yeah, it is a good film, but it's like that. It, it reminded me of that, that story. Although she does sound to me like the kind of person, if it hadn't been that day and that woman, it would have been something else. I don't think she was going to be picking fruit for very long. There was a part of the interview when I was talking to Adelina, she had come across and it hadn't happened to her, but she was very aware now of the problems with women presenting and being interrupted. I've no idea what you mean by interrupting, Susie. Oh, oh, OK, Linda, can I can I start that again, please? <laughs> really? OK, we'll go through that it's again. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. It's true. Um, I think it happens far more to women than it does to men. Is it because we sound less authoritative? Or we're just being very easy and allowing them to into interrupt. Maybe we should be we should be talking over them. But you know, I've seen people. I've actually seen people saying, "Wait, don't interrupt when I'm speaking. I'm not finished yet," and things like that. And actually, they just come over as sounding quite aggressive. Yeah. You... But, but there are some people you wouldn't interrupt. 